they brought the nice weather. I can't say with them because they don't have nice weather where they came from, but they brought the nice weather apparently. And I want to say I felt this morning in prayer that uh, at the end of uh, my message, we're going to, we don't usually do this on Sunday, but I just feel to do this. We're going to partake in communion together uh, to start off this year right, and I'm looking forward to that. If you have your Bibles, thank you for your worship, and I know you've been standing for a long time. Let me read one scripture, and I'll let you be seated. It's in Genesis 31 and verse 13. And I'm a little bit more subdued today than normal. So the Lord is with me. And I'm very thankful for those moments of weakness when God becomes your strength. Amen. And we all can, we can all, uh, have those moments in life where we need God's strength. Genesis 31 and 13 says this, I am the God of Bethel. Everyone say God of Bethel. Now this is God speaking to Jacob. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar and where thou vowest a vow unto me, and now arise, get thee out from this land and return to the land of thy kindred. I'm going to minister to you this morning for a few moments, the God of Bethel, the God of Bethel. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you in the name of the Lord, I loose the authority, the anointing, and the spirit. I loose your power to be released in our lives. I release your strength to manifest in this house this morning. You've already been here this morning in the worship, and you have received the praises of the people, and you have come to reach down and to minister to us. Let our heart, hearts be transformed. Let our lives be laid up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. Let us, I pray, God, go to Bethel, that place of consecration and that place, oh God, where we can renew our commitments to you. We lift you up. We praise you. We honor you. We love you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. You may be seated. I think it's probably hard for most of us to relate to the life of Abraham. The father of the faithful. The one guy, when God looked down upon the earth and he said, I'm going to take that guy. He's my man. I think it's probably hard for us to relate to Isaac. I mean, think about it. The promised child. For 30 years... They waited for his birth, eagerly anticipating, this is the one, this is the miracle child, this is the one that God promised. But I think Jacob, well, I think he's one that most of us can relate with. He's a man of internal conflicts and internal struggles. He's a man who had to overcome battles in himself. To fulfill the will of God and the calling of God and the prophetic word that was upon his life. Jacob had many internal struggles that he had to wrestle with. The first one being that prophetic word that was on his life. And I want to read the Apostle Paul's looking backwards in Romans 9 and 11. He said this, speaking of Jacob and Esau, he said, For the children being not yet born. Neither have they done anything evil or good, 
that the purposes of God according to elect might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. All this is basically saying in King James lingo is that God determined it before they ever did anything good or bad. And God said this in verse 12, Paul repeats it, the elder shall serve the younger. And so there was an anointing upon the younger Jacob. It was a spiritual anointing. It was an anointing that went back to God's uh, calling and God's plan, God's election, if you will. It was the spiritual word that was connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, his grandfather, that went down to the promised child Isaac. And now, not going to Esau, the oldest, but going to Jacob, the younger of the two. It was God's determination. It was placed on his life by God. It was, uh, it was there. And Jacob could feel the weight of this prophetic word on his life. And it was an unsettling struggle within him. It was a tug of war. And in his character... For on the one hand, he felt the call of God and wanted to follow it. On the other hand, he felt the call and desire of his own desires to determine the path that he would blaze himself. The second thing we see he struggles internally with is he struggled with his manipulative ways. I mean, he would take advantage of the circumstances he would read what's happening and he would, he would make a determination on how to influence others to get what he wanted. To manipulate the definition is to attempt to influence others by underhanded tactics. To use psychological means in order to influence others to do what one wants. As you read this story, the trait, as I was really contemplating this entire story, I began to realize for the first time how this trait to manipulate was in the family. It wasn't just in Jacob. You saw it in Rebecca. You saw it in Rebecca's brother Laban. And now you see it in Jacob as he struggles. He feels the calling of God, but then when he sees the opportunity to take advantage he goes after him. Oh, you, you're hungry, brother. Oh, you see my stew and you, you, you're starving. You've been in the woods for a while. Well, I tell you what, you sell me your, 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 your birthright and I will give you the bowl of stew. The third thing Jacob struggles with was a dysfunctional family. Aren't you glad you're not the only one that comes from a dysfunctional family? <laughs> In some sense, we all do, don't we? And yet when God reached down and took one family on the earth and said, I'm going to put my covenant with this family, it was a very dysfunctional family. I mean, think about it. The parents were playing favorites with their two sons. Daddy favored Esau and and mommy favored Jacob. 
Jake was always trying to one-up his brother. His brother was stronger. His brother was bigger. His brother was the warrior type, you know. He'd go out with the woods with the, the knife in his, you know, between his lips, and he would hop on the back of a, you know, I don't know, a, a, a deer, and he would slit its throat, you know. And Jacob's like, well, I'll be in the kitchen cooking stew. But he was always trying to one-up him. In fact, the Bible tells us, and it's, it's hard to really fathom, but the Bible tells us that they even wrestled within the womb of their mother. Jacob was wrestling with Esau, trying to overcome. He felt the calling. He was going to do it his way. He felt the dysfunctional relationship of a, what should be a, a, a kindred of, a, you know, ironclad uh, blood covenant. Instead, it was a wrestling match and a fight and always trying to one-up the other. I mean, it was his own mother that came to Jacob and said, Jacob, come here. I just overheard your father tell Esau he's going to give the, the blessing to him when he gets back. I tell you what I want you to do. You're going to pretend to be Esau. And you're going to go in there and you're going to deceive your father. And you're going to steal your brother's blessing. All conceived from his mother to deceive his father, to steal his brother's blessing. If there was ever a messed up family, it's in that story there. And after it's all said and done and Jacob steals the blessing... When it's exposed, when Esau vows revenge, and that meant murder. <laughs> Rebecca doubles down on her manipulative ways, and she goes to her husband. And I want to read you what she does to, to Isaac. It's one of those scriptures you might overlook, but it's in Genesis 27 and 46. And Rebecca says to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of <laughs> If Jacob take a wife with the daughters of Heth, such as the daughters of this land, what good is my life? What should it do me? I better, I should just die. I mean, you talk about laying it on thick. You talk about trying to move the heart of the husband to get what she wants. So Isaac, moved by Rebecca says, I will send Isaac to go find a wife and pay to Aram. So Isaac blesses Jacob after he stole the birthright, after he deceives his father. He blesses him and he sends him to his mother's family. The fourth struggle Jacob faces with internally, I would say, was a struggle between faith and fear. Now it's hard to believe that the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham would have any struggles with faith, but so we see it all through his life. So Jacob manip manipulates his brother's birthright. He deceives and lies to his father to get his firstborn blessing. He feels the deep tug of the prophetic word upon his soul. His brother has vowed to kill him. He's questioning his faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac. 
He's heard the stories, but he's had no true encounter with the living God. He's made no real consecrations. In many ways, as you look at the story of Jacob at this moment, he is a young man without any real direction or path on his life. He's just a man of internal conflicts that seems to constantly get himself in trouble. And here he is in serious trouble. He's going into the unknown, heading off to a new land, not knowing what life's going to bring to him next. Now, it's not surprising to learn if you would study the name of Jacob it means supplanter or leg puller or heel grabber, a serper. Some actually say it means deceiver. Genesis 28 and 10 says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and he went towards Haran. No, he left and he just went on the journey. He had no plans to stop anywhere specific. We know this because the Bible tells us in the very next verse that it was at sunset that he stopped. The sun was going down. It would be hard to travel at night back in those days. And so he came to a certain place, and he stopped there the rest for the night. Now, it wasn't in his plan, but it was in God's plan for him to rest there. It just happened to be sunset, and little did he know that the, st- the, the spot he stopped, stopped at, years earlier, in fact, decades earlier, was the very specific place where Abraham, his grandfather, had stopped when he had came up out of the city of Ur and he had went to the land of Canaan. And when he got to Canaan, Abraham stopped at this very place. It was this very spot on the earth that he made an altar And he called upon God and God spoke to Abraham the covenant and the promise of the land. Little did he know that he was in that very spot that night. Sometimes life seems full of random coincidences, but my friends, you need to understand. Sometimes it's God that has led you by the hand. I'm going to take you to a spot that you don't know anything about. I'm going to reveal some things to you that your your grandfather, your parents, uh, maybe they dug it out in prayer and they dug it out in their consecration uh, and they set a stage for you to have an encounter with God yourself. So Jacob takes a rock as a pillow. Still can't understand that one. He falls into a deep sleep. I mean, I've heard of a hard pillow, but that, you know, I don't think that's going to sell on Amazon very well. Maybe it just shows us how hard Jacob's head really was. I'm not sure. <laughs> but then he dreamed. Dreamed. See, sometimes when you're in the right place, God opens up revelation and knowledge, understanding that you couldn't receive anywhere else. He sees this ladder that stretches from earth all the way to heaven. And the angels are, are manifesting themselves. They're going up and down the ladder from earth to heaven. And at the top of the ladder is the almighty God in all of his glory. And the heavenly throne is revealed. And he stands there and he, he, he feels the weight of the presence of God upon his life. And in Genesis 28 and 13, and it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it 
And he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, and the land where there thou where thou on the liest to thee, I will give it to you and to your seed. There's three specific promises that God gave Jacob in this dream. The land you stand on is yours. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your seed. He says, your seed will be like the sand and they will spread out to the north, the south, the east and the west. And he said, through your seed, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The third promise was this, and I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this place, to this very spot, to this land. Now I want to read you verse 16, verse 28, because it's just so profound. Jacob awakes out of the sleep and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. You're getting a picture in this scripture as you begin to read this that while Jacob had heard of God, Jacob did not know God. While Jacob could feel the weight of the prophetic word on his life, Jacob did not know the God of that prophetic word. He said, I had no idea that God would be in this place. Verse 17, and I, or he was afraid. How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. You know that many times when people truly get in the presence of God in scripture, there's a holy uh, reverence of human fear that comes upon them. I think of, I think of uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He said, woe unto me. For I am a sinful man. I think of Peter as he, as he stood on that boat that day and Jesus walked, to, walked and stepped on that boat and Peter fell to his knees in and, and, and almost that holy terror and said, uh, depart from me, I am a sinful man. I, I think of the apostle John in the book of Revelations when he was taken up and he saw the throne of God and he saw the one, the great I am who was alive and was dead but now alive forevermore and he fell down as if he was dead but then he heard that voice and said fear not. I'm going to tell you my friend, when you get in the presence of God there is something that stirs inside of you and all a great anointing that's not, not of this world Something beyond this world, a holy terror that you know that you are a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And this was Jacob. He was afraid. How dreadful is this place? Verse 18, and Jacob rose up early in the morning. He took, a, he took the stone that he had put for his pillow. Now this is, this is just my imagination, but... So don't, don't write this down as Bible and don't go preach it to anyone and say, Pastor said this, it's in the Bible. No, it's not. I'm just going to throw this out though. What if, what if those pillows he laid his head on were the very rocks that Abraham used as an altar years earlier? We don't know, but I thought about what if. But he set him up for a pillar and he poured oil upon it and he called the name of that place Bethel. Verse 20, and Jacob 
vowed a vow and he said this, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I may come back to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. It's interesting to me that Jacob was pretty much given a confession here that the Lord God wasn't his God yet. But he said, if you'll keep your word, God, and you'll do what you promised, then I vow unto you that I will serve you. I will be consecrated to you. I will live my life for you. I will follow the path that you have for me. I want you to understand, my friend, Bethel is the house of God. It's the place when God shows up in your life. Uh, for the first time. It's a place when you didn't know God like, like he revealed himself to you at that place of Bethel. And every place of Bethel for every person is a different place. But all it's all the same. God became real that day. God spoke to you that day. God showed himself to you that day. God, God revealed himself in a way you never saw him before. And it becomes a place of consecration. A place where you make vows and promises to God. It's a place where you recognize the reality and the power of the, the mighty God who made the universe, the God who made all things. It's a place where you have a real encounter with God and it's a place where you put your life in the hands of God. That's what Bethel is. It's a turning of sorts. It's an awakening. It's a changing it's almost like the burning bush experience that Moses had where you can't leave the burning bush the same way before you encountered it. And my friends, you can't leave Bethel the same way that you came to it. There's a transformation because from that moment on, God has proven himself to you. So Jacob continues on his journey. Now, remember he went to find a wife. This was the reason he left, to find that perfect Woman, and he travels and he gets to the land of his mother where she came from, and he finds his perfect woman. I mean, immediately, right away. How many wish that would happen to you, right? <laughs> but he gets there, and Rachel is her name. And he's so moved by her, the Bible says that he just kisses her and he weeps. I mean, he's moved, you know. He kisses her and he weeps. And Rachel's father happens to be Jacob's mother's brother. Or to shorten it, it's his uncle. His name is Laban. Now, Laban is a very interesting character. He sees this bright, strong, intellectual, healthy young man. And more than that, Laban can recognize that there's a special blessing upon this young man. And he sees a golden opportunity to take advantage of the situation. I'm telling you, this ran in the family. And so on the wedding day, after he already promised to give his daughter to Jacob, Rachel, he, well, you know, he switches the brides. It happens. He 
He was able to turn a seven-year commitment that Jacob was going to work into a 14-year commitment. How great is that? And then after that, he was managed to keep him around for six more years, a total of 20 years. And during the last six years, he changes his wages or what he was paid 10 times. It was all to manipulate and take advantage of Jacob. Laban was using the blessing of God on Jacob's life for himself. But what God was doing was this. Sometimes we wonder, why does God allow these things? Have you ever been there? God, you've got, you blessed me and, and your hands upon me. You brought me to Beth and you spoke to me. You gave me promises. Then why am I stuck here under the, the thumb of Laban, seemingly never to get my head above water, always barely making it? And God is saying this, Jacob, because I want, I want Laban to be a mirror of the ugliness that's in you. And I want you to see it. I want you to drink it. Look at his manipulative ways. I can't say that very easily. Too many syllables. (laughs) You know, sometimes God will place you right in the middle of what you are and what's going on in you. God's saying that you can't see it in yourself. You're blinded to it. So I want you to see it in your uncle. And I want you to feel the pain that it causes. And I want you to see how ugly it is. And I want you to see how frustrating it can be. I want you to experience it, to take it in, to drink it. Because I want you to understand, Jacob, I've made you more than than for you to operate in this manner. You're going to have to rise up. You're going to have to overcome. You're going to have to get rid of these things that are within you. They're trying to hijack the calling of God on your life. I put a prophetic word on you, but this side of your spirit and character will destroy the very thing that I'm trying to do in your life. I want you to know, despite all of Jacob's troubles, God never left him. Just because you're walking through trouble and walking through the valley of the shadow of of darkness and death doesn't mean God's not with you. I'm going to tell you the very fact that you're walking through it means God's got you by the hand because you would have died under some struggles. But he's with you and he's bringing you through. He's carrying you along and he's using the circumstances of life to teach you some things. But it doesn't mean his blessings aren't with you. His hand's on you. His promises are there and his word is not changed. He is going to do what he told you he's going to do because he's a God that does not lie. His promises are yes and amen. And every promise that's written in the word of God is for you. It's for the church. Grab a hold of them. So the blessing of the Lord began to pour out upon Jacob. And now Laban's son, they begin to get, I don't know, jealous, angry. They begin to see how the the spot and the speckled sheep are multiplying and and, uh, the regular ones that Laban and his sons are going to keep seem to not be multiplying and they're very upset. So 
Laban's sons go to Laban and they say, Dad, uh, Jacob's stealing all of our inheritance. He's stealing all of our wealth. He's taking everything that belongs to us. And something clicks inside Laban. I mean, he wasn't already the nicest guy in the world. And all of a sudden, he started treating Jacob in a different fashion. He started treating Jacob harshly. And he started treating uh, Jacob as if uh, maybe he was almost an enemy of sorts. And, and Jacob could feel the change that was inside his uncle. But I want you to know, in the midst of the trouble, the Lord shows up. And this is what the Lord said when he showed up. This is 20 years removed from that moment at Bethel, and yet God shows up in the middle of this trial. And God says this in Genesis 31 and 13. I am... The God of Bethel. Maybe 20 years to us is just a moment of time. It's a blink, it's a second, if even that, for God. I am the God of Bethel. Do you remember, Jacob, where you anointed the pillar? Do you remember, Jacob, when you vowest the vow to me? Do you remember, Jacob, where you had that moment of that reality? Then you, for the first time, heard my voice in your life. Now arise up, get up, and go back to your father's house. For I am the God of Bethel. I'm telling you, my friend, he is the God of Bethel. When he met you in that prayer closet, when he met you at that altar, when he met you when you were driving down that road, when he met you when you were broken and you had nothing to give, when he met you at the moment of suicide and anxiety and depression, I'm going to tell you, my friend, he's still the God of Bethel. Rise up and go back to your father's house. He's calling you by name. He knows the trouble life has thrown your way. He knows it. Now, don't you wish, you know, God's different. That's all I can tell you. God's different. He does not fit in the box that we wish he would fit in. Don't you wish when God said, get up, go back home, that meant there was going to be a red carpet? That meant roses and sunshine. But instead, Jacob returns to Canaan and he gets word that Esau's coming with 400 men. Now, you don't bring 400 men to a welcoming committee. <laughs> you bring 400 warriors to get revenge. And Jacob knew it. 20 years had passed, but that vow of revenge was still as strong as ever. And so Jacob's full of fear and anxiety, and he goes back across the brook alone. And there he meets the angel of the Lord. And I don't know how it happens. I've thought about this many times. But how do you start a wrestling match with an angel? How does that even happen? It's so impossible to explain that the Bible doesn't even explain it. It just says Jacob wrestled with the angel. We know the angel didn't start it. I know that. <laughs> Begins to wrestle. Begins to fight with him. I believe this was the image of the internal struggle that's in Jacob. 
Come on, Jacob, you got to wrestle some things out of you. Come on, Jacob, there's a struggle against the call of God that you're going to have to break through. Come on, Jacob. You see, Jacob was wrestling with the angel, but in many ways it was Jacob wrestling with himself. Or in other words, he was wrestling with the call of God that was upon his life because so many people want to run from the call or just want to sit on the edges of the call. They're so afraid to just surrender to what God has for them. And this was Jacob. He was wrestling with the things that God has for him. And God was saying, come on, come on, Jacob. There's more in you than you know and at the end of the night when the sun break forth the angel of the Lord just touched his thigh it came out of joint just that simple the Lord gave him a new name and the Lord called him Israel it's a new identity really Jacob's deceivers the, the supplanter heel grabber Israel's to have power with God and man it's a new identity. It's a new way to see yourself. And he looks up. The angel's just gone. And he looks up. The angel Lord is just gone. And he looks up. And Esau's coming in the 400 men. And Esau runs straight at him. And he embraces Jacob and hugs him and weeps. I'm going to tell you the God of Bethel. He's the God of miracles. The God of Bethel can change even the enemy's hearts. The God of Bethel changed Esau's heart in a moment. Now one would imagine that from there Jacob would have went right straight to Bethel. What is it about humanity? If there is ever one person in scripture that I can relate with, it's Jacob. The wrestling, the internal tug of war. The feeling the call of God, the wanting to push away the call of God, the stubbornness, the bad decisions. You know, my friend, what you're seeing in the life of Jacob is a picture of humanity. And you just want to beat your head against the pulpit and say, What is wrong with humans? Jacob, did you not just wrestle with the angel? Jacob, did you not just get a new name of God? Jacob, did God just not spare your life? Esau was going to destroy you. And yet instead of going to Bethel, Jacob goes to this place called Shechem. Now let me tell you where Shechem is located. Because I believe while it's a geographical location in the land of Canaan, I believe it's also a spiritual location that all of us sometimes want to go to. It's on the very edge of Canaan land. In fact, you don't even have to cross the River Jordan to get there. And so Jacob decides... I'm going to go back to the land of my father, Canaan, the land that's promised to my father, my grandfather, to me and to my seed. But I'm just going to go to the very edge of it, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to live my life on this little edge where God is here and everything I want's right here. Trying to walk that fine line. I will live for you, God, and follow your calling, but just on this little edge here. I'll come to church, but don't, don't expect me, God, to get all carried away, you know. I'll try to listen to what pastor preaches, but don't expect me to listen to everything he says. 
I'll follow most of the words that are in the scriptures, but I can't follow all of them, God. This was Jacob. I'm going to go to Shechem. What is it that causes us from going back to Bethel? Why are we afraid as humans to go back to Beth where we know deep down God is calling us to this place of consecration and God is calling us to a place of, of new commitments and a, a, a new place where we recommit and lay ourselves on an altar as a living sacrifice. But we don't like that, do we? Jacob doesn't want to go back to that place where he vowed the vow. He doesn't want to return to that sacred place. He would rather go to Shechem because Shechem is more aligned with his human will than Bethel is. As you read it, you think, well, maybe it's just a temporary stop. Maybe he's just stopping there to get his camel's water or something. But then as you read, you realize he buys a field there. He's purchasing property. He wrecks an altar, and he names the altar uh, Jehovah God. I forgot the exact name, but it was basically God is going to bless me here. <laughs> oh, we like to do that, don't we? We're not where God's called us to be, but we're making altars proclaiming, I'm perfectly in God's will. You know, many of us do this. We seek God when we're at our lowest, when we're desperate for a change. God intervenes in our life. He does incredible miracles. He transforms things. And, and he, 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 we have this encounter with him. But then we go back to doing what pleases our flesh. Living on the edge or the border. Wanting God to bless what we do instead of seeking what God wants. We seek our own ambitions, our own desires, our own wants, our own purposes. And then we built an altar there and we proclaim, everything's perfect. God is with me. God, bless everything I am here in Shechem. And God is saying, no, I'm not a God of Shechem. I'm a God of Bethel. I'm the God of consecration. I'm a God of real intimacy. I'm a God of real encounters. I'm a God that transformed hearts, lives, and souls. I want you to understand, Shechem always represents humanity. Humanity trying to do things their way, not God's way. But it shouldn't be any surprise that if you try to live in Shechem, you're going to have a lot of trouble in your life. Because in Shechem, a lot of bad things happen. You're not under the full umbrella of God's protection. You're just partly there, so sometimes a sprinkling of trouble falls on your life. First, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, gets assaulted. She gets, uh, for all purposes, she gets raped. And her two brothers are too upset, are so upset that they use God's covenant of circumcision as a vehicle to make the men of this city weak. And then when they're, they're at the weakest and the infection in their bodies are at the highest, they go into the city and they slaughter all the men. I mean, you talk about trouble. You talk about just unbelievable wickedness. And all the cities around, they hear this great evil. And what normally would have happened, they all would have bound together and they would have naturally destroyed Jacob and his little tribe there. Who was this? 
family that would come in and do such evil. And Jacob knew it. He wasn't dumb. Jacob knew it. And in this moment of trouble, when Jacob is trying to figure out what to do in this moment, when he knows if God doesn't do something, they're all as good as dead. The Lord shows up one more time in Genesis 35 and 1. And God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. How many times are you going to stay and do what you want to do, Jacob? Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make Make an altar unto your God who appeared to you when you are fleeing from your brother. Now it's amazing in verse 4, we won't read it all, but in verse 4, Jacob then at that moment tells his tribe, his family, his extended family, get rid of the strange gods. Time out. <laughs> Time out. What? What? You mean you had strange gods in Shechem? You were worshiping false gods, and yet you set up an altar proclaiming that you were right where God wanted you? Oh, my friends. You see, in Shechem, you can have your strange gods, but not in Bethel. And Jacob knew it. Get rid of your strange gods. Consecrate yourself because we are going to Bethel. Now the Bible is full of such insight. And I want to throw this out. It's very interesting to me. Jacob wrestles with the angel in chapter 32. And his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And yet, in the next three chapters, when Jacob's in Shechem, Around 30 times, God never refers one time to Jacob as Israel, but 30 times he's only referred to as Jacob. Chapter 32, verse 29, verse 30, verse 32. Chapter 33, verse 1, verse 10, verse 17, verse 18, verse 20. Chapter 34, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 13, verse 19, verse 25, verse 27, verse 30. Chapter 35, verse 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 14, 15, 20. God refers to him only and exclusively as Jacob. Why? Because God doesn't pretend like we are something we're not. I've called you to be Israel, but you are living and acting like Jacob. You see, it's in Bethel that the battle is won over self, not in Shechem. The Lord came down and the terror of the Lord fell upon the cities that were going to destroy Jacob and his family. And Jacob leads his family back to Bethel. Under the terror and the hand of God. It was there, my friend, that God renews the covenant with Jacob. It was there that God renews his name from Jacob to Israel. It was there that the prophetic word of God once again came upon Jacob's life as God renewed the covenant of Abraham onto Jacob. I want to tell you, my friend, our new identity only and can only be from or come out of Bethel. Bethel is a place of revelation. 
Bethel is a place of the gate of heaven. Bethel is the house of God. Bethel is where the Lord's divine presence rests. Too many of us want to live in in Shechem, but once you've been to Bethel, once God has touched your life, one God, once God has come and renewed you and give you a new identity, my, my friend, get rid of the old ways, get rid of the false gods, get rid of the opinions and all the things, and go back to Bethel. I'm going to tell you, my friend, I was up here the other morning praying, and God told me to tell you, go back to Bethel. Go back. Bethel. Church, let's go back to Bethel. 2023, let's get back to Bethel. Let's go back to the prayer closet where we first met the Lord. Let's go back to the altar where God first touched our lives. Let's go back to that place where we just sought the presence of God. Let's go back to that place where God spoke to us and we had a, an encounter with God. At the beginning of this new year, my friends, let us go back to Bethel and call on the name of the Lord. For he is the God of Bethel. He is the great I am. He's the God of everything that you've ever imagined. The one who was and is and is to come. The beginning and the ending. The Alpha and the Omega. I want you to know he's the almighty God. The King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords, he is the God of Bethel. And at Bethel, he's asking you to reaffirm your covenant with him. He's asking you to recommit your life to him. Has God not been faithful to you? Has God not fed you? Has he not allowed you to have clothes on your back? And a roof over your head. Has he not brought you through the struggles and through the trials? And yet here you sit in his presence this morning. My friend, he is the God of Bethel. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our ushers to come. As they come, will they bring the communion? Cups. Communion is so connected to our consecrated life. For it is a representation of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. I would ask parents here, most of the children are in Sunday school, but if you have any children that are here, please, you make the decision whether they understand what is happening and if they can't comprehend what communion is about. Please don't let them partake of it. I want to read one scripture before we, we begin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is looking at communion and speaking of that. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11 and 28. He says, but let every person examine themselves. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. You know, it's not... <clears throat> It's not hard for weeds to grow in a garden. You don't have to have a green thumb to have a garden of weeds. So many times what's in the natural reflects the spiritual. And I find it's not hard to, in our spiritual life for weeds just to begin to grow. And so I'll ask you right now, would you examine yourself just for a moment? 
I pray this prayer a lot, and maybe you could pray some sort of this kind of prayer. I say, God, just pluck those weeds out of my heart. Take them out. But maybe together as a congregation this morning, we could just repent and just take a moment. Would you just close your eyes and call upon the Lord, and let's just together ask God to cleanse our heart. Oh, God, I pray right now. Would you wash our hearts, oh God, would you cleanse us, oh God, from the filth of the world that just from time to time just creeps up when we're not aware and brings us in, to the place that you have not called us to be. I pray purify our hearts, purify our motives, purify our attitudes, purify our lives, oh God, for we all feel the call of God in our life. For when you went to Calvary and you died on that cross and you said it is finished, the calling went out upon each and every, every person, every living soul. You have called us unto your destiny, and I pray, oh God, pluck the weeds out of our heart and out of our mind and out of our spirit. Anything that is contrary to your will, contrary to your word, contrary to the calling of God that you have in our life, and help us to partake of this communion and of your sacrifice this morning in a purity of heart and a purity of soul. God, we thank you, and we love you. Amen. We're going to ask you, if you would, just uh, file up here, and would you please take uh, a cup, and uh, uh, it doesn't matter, just start coming up, and just take a cup and a, and a bread, and you can start opening it, and if our musicians would take one and then come up here as well, thank you. Feel free to either go back to your seat or you can stay up here if you want, whatever you feel to do. and take out the wafer, the bread. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I have received of the Lord which was also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus that same night in which he was portrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and take it in the name of Jesus. After the same manner, he also took the cup, and after he had supped, saying, this is the cup of the New Testament, which is the new covenant, which is connected to the new vow that we have made in his, from his blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. As you take and drink from this cup, would you do it symbolically of renewing your vow? The vow of the New Testament that was only offered to you by the blood of Christ. Everyone just find a place to pray for a few moments before we dismiss this morning.
To the place of surrender. 